0: Welcome to the Beyond the Reef podcast, where I talk to experts and researchers in the reef aquarium hobby, discussing a broad range of topics from corals and reef biology to water chemistry and equipment. We take a deep dive into our guests' methods, techniques, and top reef-keeping tips. My name is Adam Sutherland, and I am the owner-operator of Frag Garage Corals, based out of British Columbia, Canada my guest for this episode is Lou Eckes who is the CEO of Tropic Marin USA as well as the vice president of the Marine Aquarium Society of North America aka Mazna. Lou is known for his educating and lecturing at various aquarium conferences and obviously just being an all-around awesome dude. I had a lot of questions for Lou, and he was able to give me some really good answers for a lot of this stuff. We talked about nitrates, inorganic, organic sources, potential for use of ammonia to feed our corals, carbon sources, the difference between carbon sources, and much, much more. I'd like to thank Leo Dembraian of Leonardo's Reef for the background images on this video because Leo is a very good example of someone who runs his systems exclusively on the Tropic Marin product line. I apologize. The audio quality is not as good as most episodes as I had to use the Skype audio. I had some recording issues. Thanks to the direct support of hobbyist Bobby Heath, I'm happy to bring this podcast to you absolutely ad-free. If you want to support us, the best things you can do are like, share, write us a review, and definitely subscribe. Not enough people are hitting subscribe. And if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future guests, please reach out. Well, I hope you guys enjoy and take some good information out of this episode with Lou Eckes of Tropic Marin. All right. Okay. Well, I'm good to start. Should we say we started? <laughs> yeah, sure. Go ahead. We're okay. started. <laughs> nice.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for making time, man. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's, um, it's always fun to to get on and try to address people's questions, you know, directly
0: yeah there's definitely some stuff that has built up from this podcast that i feel like you would be good at addressing so i guess i'll just kind of dive right into it and kind of some of these talking points we could probably spend quite a bit of time on so <laughs> we'll see how
1: it goes well what, us, what usually happens is you start in one place and then it leads to four other things yeah and we go down this rabbit hole definitely. you know that's just kind of the nature of the beast
0: definitely well so i guess my first this has kind of been one of the major discussions lately is um inorganic versus organic nitrates so uh say having a nitrate level in your tank as a result of the nitrification process from ammonia to nitrite to nitrate versus adding a nitrate additive to your tank um, and how that affects our corals and kind of if you can weigh in on that and give me anything on that it would be awesome
1: well, speaking of rabbit holes, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> um, because the the interesting thing about nitrates is that we actually kind of measure the wrong thing in our tanks. Our corals are not getting their nitrogen compounds from nitrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very inefficient. There's very little nitrogen that they can utilize in, the, in nitrate. Um, they're getting their nitrogen compounds from things like ammonium and uh, urea, which hmm. have like three, four times as much nitrogen in it. So it's much less work for the coral to get the nitrogen from that than from nitrate. I mean, in fact, um, the reason nitrate builds up in your system is because the corals don't want it. They don't use it. Mm-hmm. It's, just, mm-hmm. it's left over. It's inefficient to use it. So we measure nitri- nitrate as kind of an indication of are the corals getting the nitrogen compounds they they need when in fact the corals got the nitrogen they need way before the nitrate Mm. that we're measuring
0: so the nitrate we're measuring in some cases is just kind of the leftover product of you know what the corals actually need
1: it's what everybody needs and nitrates kind of left over yeah Uh, the, the end of that uh, of that um, whole ammonia process you were talking about, the nitrification and denitrification, the end result of all of that is nitrate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you brought up an interesting question. People ask me this all the time. They'll say, you know, maybe I've got a, a, a refugium and, and uh, my, my keto is just taking my nitrate level down to zero. And um, mm-hmm. You know, how can I increase the nitrates? And everybody always wants to add some kind of chemical to the tank, whatever in my opinion, the easiest and best and most efficient way to raise your nitrate level, you just overfeed the tank, feed it more. Mm -hmm. Whether the fish and the corals eat that food or not, doesn't matter. It's going to end up as nitrate. And so um, the fish and the corals and everybody in the tank is going to be happier if you feed them more. So if you need to raise that nitrate level, feed the tank more. If you think you're feeding it a lot already and the nitrates are not going up, guess what? You can feed it more and make the animals even happier. So nitrate is kind of easy to deal with when you need more, because all you really need to do is to throw more food in the tank, whether it's coral food or fish food or whatever. And that nitrate level will go up because that's the end result of the the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, <clears throat> Corals don't really care about how much nitrates in the tank. Um, you know, um, this this kind of brings us down the rabbit hole of the red field ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's actually one of my notes is to kind of debunk or sort of address that because I think a lot of people kind of treat the red field ratio or something along those lines kind of like this holy grail of kind of. Things we should follow, and it's really just—I think it's a study from the 1930s or 40s or something like that—to do with with the the ratios in phytoplankton.
1: Yeah, the problem is yeah. not so much when the study was done, but what it was done on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Redfield ratio comes from surface algae in deep water. <clears throat> which has nothing to do with corals in shallower water and coral reefs.
0: Yeah. And um, and let me just interrupt for a second. If people don't know, it's it proposes approximately 16 to one nitrate to phosphate.
1: Is that And if you right? if you look at the ratio of nitrate to phosphate on a coral reef, you're going to find that it's closer to one to one or two to one. Um, mm. It's it's never as high as 10 or 15 to one. Really? So, in an in an aquarium in a reef system if you're running five to one or ten to one that's great but you certainly don't need to to you know reach that that 15 or 16 to one of the red field because it really has nothing to do with corals mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. like so okay so if someone say wants to raise their nitrate and they're dosing a nitrate product like a you know that final process nitrate um like what is it really doing if it's just sitting there and giving you a reading? Is it just it, what things is it, is it affecting? Like, are you more likely to just be feeding some of the problem algae in the tank? Could be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and in fact, that's why I say don't add that whatever nitrate chemical you're adding. Feed the tank more. At mm-hmm. least then you're benefiting the fish and the corals along the way before you end up at that higher nitrate level uh it, it it it's a win-win all the way around there's no downside to it
0: yeah yeah and more fish too i guess is the other the other component to that depending on how much you can feed but i mean in my systems i'm so heavily stocked with coral per gallon um like i feel like i can't feed enough like i i'm, I'm inclined to add a nitrate product to
1: the tank yeah so, um you know. it, but again your corals don't really care about the nitrate mm-hmm. um on, on a coral reef the fish are getting their nitrogen, uh, sorry, the corals are getting their nitrogen compounds basically from fish poop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're getting their phosphates from fish poop. Yeah. Uh, Corals have a very inefficient mechanism for absorbing dissolved phosphate in the water column. And, And we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, keeping that phosphate level where whatever number you want to pick, yeah. uh, I like somewhere between 0.1 and 0.15 uh, mm-hmm. ppm. Uh, originally, when I first, when when the company first started looking at phosphates, we we looked at much lower numbers. We we had the sweet spot between 0.05 and 0.1 mm-hmm. uh, ppm. But in recent months, over the last year or so, um, as as we've gotten more and more knowledge about it. I've, I've let those numbers slip up in the range for me. And mm-hmm. I think um, my, my sweet spot now I consider between 0.1 and 0.15. Yeah. Uh, and if it's a little bit higher than that, that's okay too, as long as you're not growing a bunch of stuff you don't want. Because the corals just don't have a good mechanism for getting the phosphate from the water column. Mm-hmm. What they really want is particulate phosphate. On a coral reef, um, they get that from fish. Mm-hmm. The fish, a big school of, uh, you know, Moorish idols or, or Heniochus butterfly come by and they poop all over the reef. And all of a sudden there's all this particulate phosphate for the corals to absorb. They have a mm-hmm. very good mechanism for absorbing particulate phosphate. Mm-hmm. Um, then when all that particulate phosphate is consumed, now the phosphate level on the coral reef is close to zero again. Mm -hmm. and and there's two there's two factors there that are very important one is that the type of phosphate which is as as much as your corals don't really care about nitrate they really care about phosphate
0: yeah i would agree with that for sure in my experience of experimenting with the levels of both i've i've found that um you know a a solid like the the range you're talking about for phosphate i've noticed corals do a lot better especially in like millipora acropora millipora yeah, it's night and day, like the difference between like you know 0.03 phosphate and 0.1. You know, it's a huge difference. Yeah,
1: at 0.03, they're not getting anything out of the water column, and and yeah. at, at you know at 0.1 or 0.15, they're able to get a little something. But what they mm-hmm. really want is the particulate phosphate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I have to get a little producty and 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 uh, uh, corporate here for a second. Well, I was
0: gonna say because you have the new product, the Phosfeed, right? Which yeah, I think is Phosfeed. Great. Yeah, you and can tell and me about
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and and the cool thing about that is that to me is that phosphate really represents a whole new category when it comes to nutrient addition and nutrient supplementation in in a system because it's never been done. We've always done it through dissolved nutrients in the water column, mm-hmm. and now that we know that that's not the way corals get their phosphate, and we've developed this product to give them the phosphate in the particulate form that makes it comfortable and easy for them. Mm -hmm. It's a game changer, a complete game changer. Allows you to keep that phosphate down in that 0.05, 0.08 range to keep your algae growth down, but still supplying the crucial phosphates to the corals that they need. The other thing that's important about this is not just the form of phosphate that the corals are getting, which makes it easier for them to absorb, but the fact that there's a pulsing going on, so on a coral reef, this this coral head is is hanging out in pretty much close to zero phosphate environment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, now yeah. a bunch of fish come by, they poop on the on the on the reef. There's all this particulate phosphate that's available, and the corals absorb it. Mm-hmm. Now that all gets absorbed. And then it goes back to close to zero again. So there's a pulsing of the nutrients that happens on a coral reef. And if you think about it, that is the exact antithesis. It's exactly opposite to what we try to do in our reef aquariums. We're always trying to keep constant levels of everything. Yeah. Which is not the way the corals work. So, the whole idea of the particulate phosphate and this pulsing of nutrients represents really important developments in in the ability to give the corals what they want the way they want it yeah and and i mean in a way
0: by sort of having these steady elevated nutrients we're kind of our corals are kind of sitting in this like constant sort of dirtier environment whereas in the ocean it's like it's actually super clean. And then there's this spike, and then it's super clean. So when you look at water chemistry, it's just, yeah, it's a, like you say, it's an ebb and flow kind of thing. In, yeah, in it's coral hard to reefs. see. Yeah.
1: You know, like we want to reproduce what's in our, on a reef, what's in our aquariums, because um, that's very hard to do with a cold system. But we do want to try to approximate it as best we can. If we want to do that, uh, the way to do it is to keep those nutrients low, but to have them pulse. And, mm-hmm. and that excites the coral polyp in a way that allows it to accept those nutrients better than if it's just a constant level in the water column, which is what we're always trying to do yeah, for, you know, yeah. for decades, which has kind of been a mistake, especially in relation to phosphates.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, what
0: would you say? I mean, I've always assumed it's, it's absorbed through the coral polyp, but how does it, how does a coral actually take in nitrates and phosphates? Like, what's the, what's the mechanism for actually absorbing? And is it is this combined with bacteria at the same time?
1: Um, well, uh, I'm not a chemist, and I'm not a marine biologist. Um, I'm a product guy. I'm a company <laughs> yep, guy. Yep. Um, and that would be a question that I don't know the exact answer to. What I hmm. can tell you is that the more I learn about this from my scientists in Germany, the more it seems that different types of bacteria are at different places in the process, really crucial to all of this nutrient stuff that we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so um, in some cases, we're feeding the bacteria and then the corals are eating the bacteria and getting the nutrients that way. And in other cases, the bacteria acts as a almost as a catalyst to help the, the coral polyp absorb it. But, um, the exact mechanism by, by how all of that happens, uh, that's above my pay grade. Yeah. Well, that's fair. But I mean, yeah, if you think about
0: corals basically eating fish poop, uh, you know, they're taking in bacteria, like fish poop is going to be full of bacteria. Um, and something that like, uh, has been sort of catching on from a, a guest I had on Alan, Alan Vo. He was on mm-hmm. an episode a little while back. You probably know Alan, right? No, I don't actually. yeah. well, so he's he kind of figured out this concoction of of mixing coral foods with bacteria strains and kind of basically letting it marinate and sit. So the bacterial culture can kind of, you know, like grow before you feed it. so you're essentially like getting more bacteria yeah. infused into the food. So I kind of thought this coming up for a term for this would be uh, bacteria infused feeding. And I think that, you know, maybe we can make that one fly. But uh, I think that probably makes more sense than just putting coral food directly in. But also, like, I guess I wanted to ask you, um, like, what is your opinion on corals actually taking in, like, particulate-type foods into the polyp?
1: They do that actively all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's actually one one of the big differences between a coral polyp. Living in a reef system in, in your tank and living on the coral reef. Um, on a coral reef, those polyps are feeding 24-7. Mm-hmm. They are absorbing whatever comes by in the water column, whenever they can grab it, 24-7. Um, do they feed more actively and differently in times of blooms and in nighttime? Yes, there's there are differences throughout the day. But the simple fact of the matter is that they feed twenty four seven. In your tank, you feed your corals what two three times a day? Yeah,
0: I mean sometimes only once a day. Yeah, yeah it really depends. Yeah,
1: and so we're we're only giving them that opportunity mm. to absorb those nutrients and those foods to in in their uh, scope of looking at things for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Very differently from the way they normally do it. We give them a massive amount of nutrients for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or 30 minutes, where in the wild, they're getting a tiny amount of nutrient 24-7 constantly. Yeah, yeah. And and so, um, you know, I'm a big fan of feeding corals. One thing, one thing that I learned that I was fascinated to learn very early on in, in my career was that. Um, I thought, you know, corals with the zooxanthellae were, you know, photosynthetic creatures, uh, you know, and had this symbiosis going on, and they really didn't need a lot of food. Um, mm. And I learned very early on that, you know, corals can't live on the photosynthetic process of the zooxanthellae alone. They need additional nutrients. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, but that kind of takes me back to the uh, the Zeovit method a little bit, because that method was based— more around restricting the zooxanthellae and feeding the coral more bacteria. Um, and those systems were ultra-low nutrients back yeah. when. I mean, you remember that system well. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, why do you think that system worked for some people? I don't think it was an easy system to knock out of the park.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, the line. you know, like, I'm not an expert in that system. Mm. Um, I never ran a zeovit system. Uh, my, I did help a lot of people that were converting from Zovit, uh, it seemed to me that the thing that that kind of turned people off when they did get turned off. Some people had great success with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the people that I helped that that kind of got turned off to it were turned off because it was just so many factors to mm-hmm. to look at and 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 so many balls up at the air, in the air at once. Um, but you know, it seemed like people that were capable of doing all of that juggling were were able to get pretty good success. I, I don't think it's a bad system. I think it's built on good science. Um, I just don't know that maybe we have the technology that yet that makes that a that type of an approach easy and accessible enough yeah. for the yeah. average you know hobbyist. But I think it's
0: still a stepping stone for the hobby. Like we I think we learn some of the importance of bacteria as a as a means to feed corals and, you know, to deliver some of those things to the polyp that, you know, probably wouldn't have wouldn't have worked otherwise. But yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a funny it's a funny one to look back at because it's this kind of pastel kind of well, I know a lot of people <laughs> that still, still use it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, another thing I would say about it, too, is that they were probably one of the earlier companies to start putting a lot of products out there with trace elements. Um, I, actually, I can't speak for Tropic Marin, but um, I mean, you guys have been doing like your, your trace component that goes along with your bowing system for yeah. quite a while, which is, is two parts, right? There's the... Uh, the
1: Yeah, what we do is there, There's um there's basically seven, if you look at the 70 trace elements in natural seawater and you really look carefully at which ones deplete quickly in reef tanks. Mm-hmm. You kind of can boil it down to 17. Um, and you can separate those 17 into seven negative ions. They're, if you look at them as ions, yeah. seven negative ions and 10 positive ions. Yeah. And what, what Tropic Marin does is to separate those into two solutions. The negative ion solution and the positive ion solution, and the reason we do that is because it um, it it helps prevent them from precipitating. Yeah, definitely. You know, so um, so that's why we've got the A and K, uh, mm. and and separate them into um, A stands for anions and K stands for mm. cations.
0: Yeah. And I guess one of the kind of advantages of that, too, if you're doing regular ICPs, I mean, I imagine that those are generally dosed in the same portions. But if you were to be lower on certain ions and those were the ones in the K bottle, you could up the dose a little bit of your, you know, higher. Yeah, calcium absolutely. Iodide. yeah.
1: yeah absolutely. And you have to realize that um, there are certain elements that are almost always going to show up low on icp testing yeah definitely because they're they're taken up so quickly by bacteria um iron is one yeah um, manganese iodine um those three things almost always show up low on icp testing yeah and it doesn't mean that you need to add more what it means is that what you're adding is getting consumed. And by the time the ICP test is done, it's pretty much gone. Yeah. And and but, that's something pretty common. I get a lot of calls about those three particular, um, you know, and you can add more. You can add more iodine. You can add more iron. You can add more manganese. Um, but in general, if you're adding the trace, at least our trace element products, the animals are getting what they need. It just gets depleted the minute it goes in. Yeah, that, I mean
0: that's probably a good reason to do daily dosing as opposed to you know once or twice a week or whatever because like yeah yeah
1: um, and yeah. then you know this is I always I always kind of separate iodine out a little bit from yeah. the mix from the mix of um, of trace elements. Well,
0: people put it in a trace elements, but it is actually more in that major element category as is potassium, right?
1: Well, we have it in our trace elements as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but when speaking about trace elements, I I, I separate it, and the reason mm-hmm. I separate it is because there's there's very little that we add to our reef tanks that has the potential to be really dangerous if we add too much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Very little. Um, iodine is one of those things that if you you know if somebody's not understanding that the iodine gets used very quickly and is always gonna be showing low on their ICP test, and they're constantly increasing their iodine dosage so that they get a good value on their ICP test, they do run the risk of uh, poisoning stuff. It's just a simple fact. Um, That doesn't happen with iron, it doesn't happen with manganese, uh, but it can happen with with iodine. So I always tell people to be very careful and, and realize that if you're adding iodine in a solution, Your animals are getting what they need. And unless you're trying to do something really special, um, let's say you're trying to, um, uh, for some reason, you want to propagate a huge tank of pulsing Xenia, right? Mm -hmm. Which nobody wants to do because everybody wants to get it (laughs) out of their tank anyway. But let's say you wanted to do that. Xenia loves iodine. You want to keep that iodine level up. But in most cases, um, as long as you're adding it, the animals are getting what they need. Don't try to get that one in particular to register where you want it to register on a nice yeah.
0: test. Yeah, so don't let it register above. Um, okay, so something I want to ask you back on the nitrates uh, topic here was, yeah. um, should we consider dosing um, an ammonia or urea type product? Is What are the thoughts on that and the dangers and associated with
1: You know, this is a question that's coming up more and more because of our understanding of of where corals are getting their nitrates from. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a good answer to it at this moment. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that I know a number of people that are experimenting with this, that are doing this. They're actually dosing urea. And chemically, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that we're going to find... That we're going to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, We just don't have the research done yet to say, yes, that's a, that's, you know, like we we don't have the definitive research on, yes, that works. That's the way to do this. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the direction it's going in. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if someday you don't see a product from, you know, Tropic Marin that moves in that direction.
0: Yeah. do you th- do you, are there people in in the labs that are working
1: on that do you think or it's at least yeah.
0: being discussed yeah yeah there
1: yeah. are and in fact uh, some of our um, I, I believe that some of our carbon dosing uh, kind of uh, does that a little bit um, but I don't think that we have we, we haven't developed a product yet where we say you know here's how you give your nitrogen compounds with this urea based mm-hmm. product or whatever but yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's where it's going to lead at some point
0: okay yeah well keep me posted on that i mean i think i'm super interested in that because uh i do feel like dosing um nitrate products like t- directly to the tank is is it's not it's just kind of giving us a number that we like but i don't know how much bioavailability it really has to our corals
1: at the well end and of the then day, like so. i say the best thing you can do is overfeed yeah, yeah. Just feed definitely. it more because that's going to benefit everybody, and then end up giving you more nitrates.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so actually, you mentioned another thing there a second ago: uh, carbon sources. Yeah. I wouldn't mind talking about carbon sources and kind of like the, I guess, the idea of of carbon sources feeding bacteria, and which bacteria are more likely to benefit our corals, or could carbon sources potentially fuel some of the bad bacteria too?
1: All right, so first let's talk about bacteria in general, um, and I'm going to give you my my opinion of this. Uh, it may be wrong because I'm not, you know, I'm not a I'm not a bacteria scientist. Uh, yeah. I'm not doing <laughs> the research in the lab, but I really believe that if you have a a, a well established reef system. Now, I'm not talking about a reef system that just cycled. I'm talking about a reef system that's been running a couple of years or more, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really believe that you have all the strains of bacteria in there that you need. You've added corals that come from the ocean. They have bacteria on them. Mm -hmm. You've added rock. You put fish in there. You put anemones in there. All this stuff introduces different types of bacteria from time to time. Yeah. Bacteria, in general, is better at one thing than almost any other organism on the face of the planet Earth, and that is multiplying. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) in my opinion, as long as you're feeding the beneficial bacteria what it needs to multiply, you've got what you need for that type of bacteria in your system. So... In general, and I'm not saying this is a hundred percent, but in general, I don't think it's necessary to add a lot of bacteria to the system. I think it's there, and if you feed it, it's going to multiply, and it's going to yeah. multiply quickly.
0: Right. Well, but if you're, you know, adding a carbon source, for example, like you can't pick and choose which bacteria are going
1: to utilize it. So you well, know, you you've can got, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um and, and here's how you can. And and again, this is a these are general statements that are not a hundred percent, but in general, the bacteria that we don't want to grow, things like cyanobacteria and other bacteria it calls bacterial negative bacterial blooms in the system. Mm-hmm. These are bacterias that are only capable of utilizing a very short carbon source, very short carbon chain, mm-hmm. what we would call a monomer, a single carbon molecule, all right? Mm. They don't, in general, they don't have the ability to take a longer carbon chain and break it up into the smaller monomers that it needs to to utilize,
2: mm.
1: all right? Again, not 100%, but this is just in general, mm-hmm. On the other flip side of this are the good beneficial bacterias that are feeding the corals and doing the nitrification, all the stuff that we want to have happen. Those bacterias are more talented at and have a better mechanism for breaking down these longer chains into the smaller components that they need, all right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if we, if we buy all of that, then we can say, well, if we add longer chain polymers, longer chain carbon sources to the system, mm-hmm. we kind of exclude the bad guys from getting those mm. and we kind of funnel that more to the beneficial bacteria. Mm.
0: So, what would be like a longer chain carbon source, like an example?
1: Uh, well, uh, for instance, the refactif that. Tropic Marin has, which is made from long chain biopolymers from seaweed. These are mm. longer mm. chain natural biopolymers that exist in seaweed. This is okay. some of the biopolymers that do carbon dosing in the ocean. Okay. Mm. Um, the the other thing to look at is what are the the monomers, the smaller short chains that we would want to avoid. Those mm. are things like vodka, alcohol uh vinegar sugar
0: yeah simple simple sugars yeah
1: those are carbon sources but they're very short carbon sources Mm -hmm. so when you put alcohol in the tank or you put um sugar in the tank or an acid uh like like vinegar Mm -hmm. um you're really putting in a carbon source that everybody can use Mm
2: -hmm.
1: good guys and the bad guys yeah you know Um, this isn't a hundred percent. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying that, you know, you, if you put sugar in, you're going to get a cyanobacteria bloom. And if you put a long chain polymer in, you're not, Mm -hmm. it's not quite that simple, but you're, you're, you're funneling this carbon source with a longer chain to the good guys and kind of excluding the things we don't want to feed. And if you do things like vinegar, vodka, sugar, alcohol, um you're really giving a carbon source that the good guys can use but the bad guys can use it just as effectively
0: yeah yeah well that's a good thing for people to consider because often people are like well i'm, I'm just using vinegar or
1: vodka cuz it's cheap it's a cheap carbon source you know i mean i mean i think actually yeah. you know in the beginning of carbon dosing in the fir- in the early days of carbon dosing it got a very bad name a very bad rap because Everybody said, well, I, you know, I started carbon dosing in my, you know, I I grew a whole lot of of, you know, cyanobacteria bloomed in my tank or I I, the hair algae went crazy or, you know, um, I I grew a whole bunch of slimy, you know, orange stuff. Yeah, Um, it's I think it's the reason that carbon dosing got such a bad rap early on was because those were the options vinegar vodka sugar yeah that was what that was the only, the only options
0: yeah yeah and i guess i mean at that probably at that stage when, when do you think that was like 2005 kind
1: of like it was it was a while right. back yeah it was a while back I yeah. mean i don't know when the whole thing started but I think it actually was before that even, but it kind of got popularized in the early 2000s.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I would say back in those days, too, there were less bacteria products on the market. So, you know, whatever the composition of bacteria in people's tanks could kind of go either way. You know, if you're just feeding this broad kind of widely accepted sugar source, you know.
1: Yeah, again, I think that the amount of bacteria um, that you add with a bacterial product Uh, And, and man, I hope Dr. Tim doesn't watch this because he'll hate me right now. But (laughs) I I think, (laughs) don't get me wrong, I love Tim. I know him really well for years. But um, in my opinion, the amount of bacteria that you're adding with a bacterial-based product, where you're actually adding the bacteria, really pales in relation to the amount of bacteria that will grow in the tank in a very short period of time if you feed the beneficial bacteria well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, that's it's interesting. I'm definitely going to look more into this and consider it. Um, this is actually be a good transition into this question. Um, you know the whole antibiotic kind of trend that's going on kind of in North America right now. It's being Antibiotics are being treated in whole systems a lot. Um, and I'm I'm not trying to encourage it in any way. I have done it before. I have seen positive results from it. I do think it messes up your biofilms and some of the microbiome, but it all depends on what your application is. Um what do you think is a better approach to, you know, a healthy microbiome in a tank compared to treating a whole system with an antibiotic?
1: Well, before I go to that, I'm going to set a little foundation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because I think it's really important there there's a there's a factor in reefing that I think the average hobbyist kind of forgets, which is that the things that we don't want to grow in our reef tank, want exactly the same conditions of the things that we do want to grow.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And in fact, on a natural coral reef, all of those things that we don't want to grow Grow right next to all of the things we do want to grow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you go, you go snorkeling or diving. Uh, do you dive at all? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So when you go diving on a reef, you see all of these things right next to the beautiful corals. You see the cyanobacteria. You see the dinoflagellates. You see the green hair algae or the bryopsis or the bubble algae, because it all wants the same conditions. Mm-hmm. And in our reef tanks, we keep saying, I always hear people say, you know, oh, I want to create this perfect little chunk of the ocean in my living room. No, you Mm -hmm. don't. What you want to create is a chunk of the ocean in your living room that grows all of the stuff that you think looks really cool Mm -hmm. and doesn't grow any of the stuff that normally grows right next to that on a reef. Yeah, And so... As a foundational piece, before we get into your question, as a foundational piece, you need to understand that a reef system is always walking this very fine line between giving those animals just enough of what they want Mm -hmm. that... We're growing the good guys, but not encouraging the bad guys.
0: Yeah, and and just to add to that, I mean, I think always keeping in mind that corals have a symbiotic algae in them. It's algae. You know, We're if we're trying to not grow this algae and we're trying to support that algae, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah.
1: absolutely. It's a tough
0: balance. Yeah.
1: And and so um, and, and in fact, if you want to talk about the if you want to focus on the zooxanthellae for a minute, um, it's not just that we want to support the zooxanthellae. We want to grow the right amount of zooxanthellae in those polyps, because if we don't grow enough, they're not going to look the way we want them to look. Yeah. If we grow too much, they're not going to look the way we want them to look. They're yeah. going to be brown. Yeah. Um, all zooxanthellae are brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We want to grow just the right amount of zozanteli. I mean, this is a really difficult balance that you're trying to create when you have a reef. And so, I mean, the reason I went there is because the the answer to your question is to give whatever your particular reef needs to walk that tightrope. And for each reef, it's going to be a little something different because Everything relates to something else. You know, the the amount of minerals in the water relate to the amount of nutrients in the water, relates to the amount of oxygen in the water, which relates to the amount. Ima- I mean, every single factor relates to another factor in your system. And so there is no silver bullet. There is no right way to do it or wrong way to do it. I've seen systems run in parameters that I thought would never sustain a reef and it looks amazing right what is that guy doing i don't know it's just something about his particular reef then i've known other reefs that the parameters looked amazing everything was perfect the person was doing everything they should do and they can't sustain a stick Mm -hmm. you know so the answer really to the question that you're asking is Um, And and sometimes hobbyists hate when I say this, but I think it's really the ultimate rule is you have to learn the language of your system. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to listen to your system. Your system tells you every single day what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. It tells you, you know, those corals, you know, the minute you look at those corals if things are going well or things are not the only so, problem
0: is let me just say on that is that you don't know if it's one of 10 or 20 things that it could be sometimes you know but how often do you really know
1: <laughs> no it, it's totally <laughs> you know? true but yeah. that's why i'm that's why i say learning the language of your system yeah learning to listen to what your system is telling you is really the ultimate skill in hob, in the hobby because every system is going to talk to their owner in a different way and is going to explain what's going on in a different way. And, you know, I've been doing this now for over 27 years and sometimes I can, you can tell me something and I can say, Oh, try this and it's going to work and it works great. And that, and that fixed it. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's half the time. The other half of the time it's something else that needs to be done that you need to figure out what it is. And I can talk to you all day long about what's going on in your system, but at the end of the day, you're gonna look at your system and you're gonna see which one of those things is gonna be making that difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think getting a keen eye for for your system and just knowing really what you're looking at, it's just like little things like, like I can kind of see the density of the zooxanthellae when I look really closely at certain corals. Um, you know, just the difference in the the way the polyp extends. Like sometimes the polyps just kind of out, but it's just kind of eh. yeah. And sometimes it's flowing, and and it's got this nice, healthy, just you know, dancing in the flow kind of thing. So you yeah. know, those little cues are 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 the things. Like you know, the advan- Once you get more of an eye for for it, I think the
1: more success you have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then and then there are systems that you know, like I've I've had a couple of systems of with people that I've worked with that will do really well with all different kinds of corals except one Mm -hmm. there'll be one kind of coral that that particular guy just cannot sustain and what's the answer to that i don't know you know like i the the, one of the great things about this hobby is that the more we learn the more we find out the more we don't know
0: yeah 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 it's tough because you know i used to think like oh yeah you can't make everyone happy there's always going to be a couple corals that are not as colorful or as extended or whatever. But, you know, I also see those corals as a little bit of a indication that, you know, maybe they were the first ones to not tolerate something that the other ones are tolerating and maybe they're healthy enough to just, you know, not mind, but, you know, it's like that, we have all these canaries basically that yeah. kind of give us, give us a bit of a, a sign, but.
1: Well, um, you know, one thing yeah. that we're learning is that um, Younger corals, uh, juvenile corals, mm-hmm. do better at adapting to different parameters, circumstances, heat, um, and and so forth. And and in fact, I think that um, all of the research that's being done on the sexual reproduction of corals, as opposed to, you know, fragging and growing corals, um, I, I really think that's where the whole hobby is going to end up. Yeah. Um, it's also going to be where um, coral restoration on reefs end up, because um, implanting corals, outplanting corals that are um, juveniles uh, mm-hmm. that are that are settlers uh, is going to be much more successful, I think, in the long run than planting these frags that we've grown and then relocate to a new a new yeah. uh, situation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there may be strains of zooxanthellae that are a little more resistant to higher temperatures, too, that, you know, yeah. I, I, I wonder if when a and I, this is something I'll I'll get have Jamie Craggs on at some point and I'll get into this with him. But I wonder when a coral um, like the gammy or whatever settles and starts to grow, I wonder if it's born with the zooxanthellae on it. Well, born is kind of a weird term for it, but you yeah, know yeah. what I mean. Or if that zoontheli is picked up in those early stages of development, and therefore it's kind of an open canvas for, you know, whatever strain. So you know that could be. I don't know. I'll I'll ask Jamie about it. I'm yeah, sure it's a good question. I opinions. mean, I I assume
1: <laughs> that it's got to acquire the zoontheli at some point, mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't have it when it's a you know, uh, you know, when it's a a tiny little yeah. And i i know that
0: about clams for sure i am pretty sure i heard that uh, the clam farmers actually have a way of actually like transferring the zozantelli from from the adults to the to the babies or something like that so i mean as a
1: planula yeah. i don't think a coral has um has zozantelli no
0: you know? i so, wouldn't it wouldn't yeah
1: totally you know so it's got to acquire it somewhere i mean another you know somebody else that you may want to have on at some point is hanslora balling um because he does an awful lot of our, you know, he really runs our research facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. He could give you some, you know, really when you when you talk about some of these questions that I can't answer about how the corals acquire that nutrition and all, he's a guy that could answer that for you.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, if you want to make an introduction, i'm I'd be happy. <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to do that. yeah, for you. cool, cool. Uh, actually, so just going back to this bacteria thing and using antibiotics, do you have any recommendations or solutions for, um, you know, improving the biome of a system as opposed to hitting it with an antibiotic and kind of, you know, trying to? It,
1: it it goes back to everything I've already said, which yeah. is I think that the bacteria that you need is probably already there in a mature system. Yeah, feeding the good guys. Um, is they're going to outcompete the bad guys?
0: So feeding the good guys with a good carbon source, yeah, with one of these longer chain carbon sources potentially.
1: Yeah, and be and key. And you know the 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 Tropic Marin approach to um, to carbon dosing is is very different than uh, than most other companies, where most other companies say if you want a carbon dose, use this product. Mm-hmm. With Tropic Marin, it depends on what your phosphate level is. You know, if your phosphate level is below 0.05 ppm Mm -hmm. you need to add phosphates and nitrates and so that's where the plus np comes in Mm -hmm. now if you're between that 0.05 and say 0.15 because i've as i said i've raised my numbers up a little bit Mm -hmm. um, then you want to do the carbon dosing but you also want to add enough nitrate and phosphate that you maintain that level that you're at So Mm -hmm. that's where the NP-bactyl balance comes in, because then you're doing the carbon dosing to get that phosphate to your corals, but you're also adding nitrates and phosphates to maintain the levels that you have. And in this case,
0: you're talking, you would be adding nitrate, like a nitrate additive in this case. Or nitrogen compounds. Yeah, nitrogen compounds. Yeah, That's
1: where the urea type addition. Yeah yeah okay okay um and then um if your if your phosphates are above 0.15 and you need to reduce them that's where the lima np comes in because now what you're doing is is that you're doing the carbon dosing but you're not adding the nitrates and phosphates and that's going to help get that phosphate level down
0: yeah yeah okay yeah (laughs) A uh, little bit of a left turn, um, but I'm sure you probably have a lot to say about this. Um, can we talk about major element sources? So let's compare balling system, uh, calcium reactors, one part, and calc. And if you can kind of, you know, I mean, I know Tropic Marin makes a balling system, like, and that's your, you know, primary. Let's clarify. Uh,
1: yeah. Let's clarify. Tropic Marin is the only company that makes the balling method Mm -hmm. there are other companies that make chemicals that they call balling something Mm -hmm. balling light balling whatever yeah they are not the balling method they have nothing to do with the balling method Um, the balling method has three parts part a which is calcium chloride and Mm -hmm. nothing else Mm-hmm. Part B, which is your carbonate source, which is uh sodium bicarbonate and a little tiny bit of sodium carbonate. Yeah. And nothing else. Yeah. And then part C, which is all 70 trace elements and magnesium that are in the ocean with no carbonates and no calcium, because you're adding that with the part A mm-hmm. and B. Okay. Mm-hmm. The true balling method does not address magnesium. The true balling method does not address the consumption of trace elements. Mm-hmm. Okay. The true balling method only addresses the consumption of calcium and alkalinity in a balanced way. Okay. All right. Um, so, all of these other products, wherever they come from, that are called balling, they some of them work and some of them work really well but it's a little bit of a misnomer to call them balling because they're not really Mm balling okay um the there are advantages and we've got like four or five different ways to add calcium and alkalinity and magnesium to the system Mm -hmm. each one has its advantages and disadvantages they're not good better best yeah so, since we're on the balling method, let's call, let's talk about the balling method first. The disadvantage of the balling method is that you need three dosing pumps for just, or or you have to manually dose three yeah. different solutions for just your calcium and your alkalinity. That's a disadvantage to some people. Okay. Yeah. The other disadvantage is you're not addressing magnesium. The other disadvantage is you're not addressing the consumption of trace elements. Yeah. However, you can add our trace K to the balling A solution and the trace A to the balling B solution so that when you're adding the A, B, and C, you are taking care of your trace element consumption. Mm-hmm. Okay, the advantage of the balling method is that if you have one of these systems that tends to use more alkalinity per unit of calcium than the corals use, Mm -hmm. you can put more B in and address that. Yeah. You can't do that with a calcium reactor or a one part.
0: Yeah, no,
1: definitely not. So the advantage of the balling method is that you can tweak the amount of calcium and alkalinity going in big advantage
2: mm-hmm,
1: right mm-hmm. um so that's the balling method yeah then um i mean i i can't speak too much to calcium reactors because we don't make a calcium reactor i can i can tell you that um they scare me a little bit because i don't know much about them and i've seen <laughs> too many instances where people yeah, have trouble with them not that's that scary being, <laughs> that being said I know a lot of systems that run very, very well on them. Yeah. Most of the large public aquariums use them because it's the best way to do calcium and alkalinity for a really big system. Yeah. The one thing that you always have to remember when you're using a reactor is that it's probably not taking care of your trace elements. And so you probably yeah. need trace yeah. element addition as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right. and and I mean, obviously, like one of the side side products of calcium reactor is you're adding extra carbonic acid to the system, so mm-hmm. potentially lower pH. Um, but uh, yeah, like your bowling system, um, you said that it the the alkalinity component is mostly sodium bicarbonate and a bit of, correct, carbonate. So, yeah. I mean, as far as pH effect, would you say that it has like when it's very dosed, it it has very little so yeah i guess the kind of idea of that is that you're you're if it's someone that's say adding one dose a day they're not going to have this huge spike
1: in ph correct yeah um now a lot of people use um sodium hydroxide calc because they want to get that ph uh yeah uh, that that raise in the ph personally i'm not a fan of kalkwasser as the primary form of calcium okay for two reasons one reason is um i I think it's fine as a supplemental you know form but as a primary form um the first reason i'm not a huge fan is because a well flourishing reef tank often needs more it's very dilute in calcium and mm-hmm. so often what happens is you reach a point where the system needs more calcium hydroxide than the amount of makeup water that you're putting in. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got a dilemma. You're putting in a gallon of makeup water every day, but the system needs a gallon and a half of sodium hydroxide. And so you you can't make up the difference, right? Yeah. The other downside to me is that If your tank really needs that much, well, wait a minute, let me go back one step. I'm not a fan of elevating pH and elevating alkalinity and calcium to get faster coral growth. Okay? Not a fan of that method. Um, I'm not a fan of that method. I I mean,
0: I I think I do that. I attempt to keep my pH higher to increase growth, and I would say Mm -hmm. it does. But I would say it also means you're kind of riding in the fast lane a little bit you know you know it also
1: (laughs) changes the pattern of growth um if you look at a a, a, an aquapora that has grown in uh if you compare two aquapora of the same species one grown at uh, 420 calcium or 440 calcium Mm -hmm. with a ph of 8.2 and an alkalinity of of uh uh, seven Mm -hmm. and um another of the same, another head uh, stick of the same species that's that's grown it at um, 600 calcium, uh, uh, 10 or 11 dKH um, and a pH of, uh, you know, 8.4, 8.5, 8.6. What you'll see is that the pattern of growth is very different Mm -hmm. and also if you grab a branch of the one grown in seawater conditions you can't just snap it yeah and if you grab a branch of the one grown in high calcium high alkalinity you can take it and just snap it
0: yeah so it may be growing faster but not really creating as you know robust of a skeleton yeah in the first place the the thing that's surprising to me is that um you know corals take in these elements and they precipitate them together to kind of build their skeletons so, wouldn't you think in a higher pH environment, it would, it wouldn't be any different, you know? Because it's, it's. I, I mean, I would think a lower pH environment would be more likely to not create as good a precipitation. Well, I think that you, when,
1: when, when we want to talk about that, we have to be careful about what we're calling lower and what we're calling higher, right? Mm. So, if we're calling lower. You know, 7.8 or 7.9, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you. If we're calling lower 7.4, then yes, I agree with you. Right. If we're calling higher 8.4, I wouldn't agree with you. If we're calling higher 8.6 or 8.7, I might agree with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so it also depends a little bit on that. What, you know, this is where I fall on this. Um, We kind of did go down a rabbit hole here. This was (laughs) was not at all we were talking about. But um, this is what I usually tell people when they talk about these higher pH, higher uh, alkalinity and and calcium systems. Corals have been growing like weeds, taking over hundreds of thousands of acres in the ocean Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for literally hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. We are not going to come up in a hundred years of reef keeping with a better way to do it. Right. And so. Corals grow pretty fast under the right conditions Mm -hmm. and they grow healthy under the right conditions. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of where I fall on that. Yeah. Um, But just to we should go back to where we were originally
0: yeah we were talking about major element sources we you didn't know, talk about one um, part
1: yeah yeah so um the we were talking about Kalkwasser. i and and people some people really like this elevation of the ph that they get some people like it because they like to get higher than 8.4 some people like it because their tank tends to run low and the kalkvasser helps get it up into that to 8.4 range.
0: Especially if you're running a calcium reactor in conjunction
1: with it. Yeah. Exactly. So, where I come, where I fall on all of that is that under the right conditions, a reef tank really wants to be 8.2 to 8.4 under the right conditions because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of carbonates in the water. And with that much carbonates in the water, it wants to be 8.2 to 8.4. If your tank is running seven, eight or lower, then let's look at what this alkalinity pH draw in your system is. I'll bet anything we can find it. It usually Mm -hmm. comes down to CO2 or some type of circulation issue, Mm -hmm. either CO2 pooling for some reason you got a brand new house it's really tight there's a bunch of people in the house yeah, the yeah. in the basement the CO2 falls down blah 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 or maybe you've got a lot of circulation in the tank and there's a dead spot and that dead spot is a, is accumulating detritus yeah. maybe that dead spot is maybe that dead spots in your sump could be in your sump as well but that detritus that pile of detritus is going to act like like a rotting fish, and it's gonna release acids Mm -hmm. which are going to lower your alkalinity and your pH, right? So I do this all the time with people that complain about low pH in their tank, is I help them find what is that pH alkalinity draw, and once we get rid of that and the tank is maintaining itself at say 8.0 or 8.2 or 8.4, then we don't need that additional sodium hydroxide boost of pH anymore or a CO2 scrubber or something like that yeah sometimes it's as simple as a CO2 scrubber the the easiest test for that is take an airline hook it to your um to your uh uh, protein skimmer air intake run the other end of the airline out a window Mm -hmm. if it's a CO2 problem your problem goes away in six to eight hours Mm -hmm. it's that simple you know um so sodium hydroxide it's okay not my favorite for those two reasons the volume and the ph change um now we get into single solution uh uh additions we have both our our, reef our carbocalcium and the alpha reef the carbocalcium is alkalinity and and uh, calcium only nothing else okay Um, and then the alpha reef is calcium alkalinity magnesium and trace elements all in one solution and that's an interesting product to me
0: i've never used it but i've heard um a lot of people have had good success with it but you know speaking of the ions opposite ions like i've always just wondered how how it gets along in the same concoction without simple answer
1: to that is that the <laughs> um the the alpha reef and the carbocalcium for that matter are based in calcium formate okay mm. and The solution that you make, if you make the powder or you buy the bottle of solution, doesn't matter, the same solution, is a supersaturated solution. It's extremely concentrated. That concentrated solution prevents the positive and negative ions from precipitating. Mm -hmm. If you add just the trace A and trace K to RODI water, they precipitate because there's no concentration in there Mm -hmm. to keep Mm -hmm. them from... Yeah, there's no bouncers. There's no bouncers yeah, exactly. The door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And all so right. the reason it can it can work in the Alpha Reef and the carbocalcium is because the solution is so concentrated that it keeps it from precipitating. Mm, yeah. And the funny thing about all Reef is I I talk to so many people that have switched over to all Reef from some other form of calcium alkalinity addition, whatever it is. And they tell me that their tank is doing amazing, better than it ever has. Mm-hmm. And the the reason for that, most of the time, has nothing to do with the calcium and the alkalinity in the calcium formate, and everything to do with the fact that now that they're adding all for, ETH, for the first time the tank is getting the trace elements that it needed, because they were doing calcium, alkalinity, magnesium before, but not trace elements. Yeah, yeah. So the trace elements often make that big difference.
0: Yeah, it's and I mean, in theory, it sounds really good to me. I like the simplicity of it, um, but you know, for the volume of 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 you know elements I go through, I would need to be able to buy it in in bulk sizes.
1: <laughs> uh, we now sell it in a five gallon bucket because oh, yeah. uh, so many maintenance companies are switching over to it. If yeah. you add up what you spend for your calcium, your alkalinity, your magnesium and all of your trace element products then compare that total to your alphareef mm-hmm. the alphareef usually comes out ahead
0: yeah okay yeah
1: now cool. there is a downside to the alphareef okay i told you there's a there's an advantage yep. and downside to everything yeah To each one of these yeah the downside to the alphareef and it's not a big downside and there's an easy solution to it but the downside to the alphareef is that now that we've put everything in a single solution, the ratio of those components is fixed. You can't change the amount of alkalinity going in in relation to the amount of mm-hmm. calcium going in like you can with balling. Right? Makes sense. So if you have one of these systems that uses a little bit more alkalinity, you need to supplement the alkalinity in that system that you're adding ultra reef to with yeah. a little balling B from time to time. Yeah right but that's the only downside to it is that the ratio of those components is fixed you can't tweak it at all
0: but you could say the same about calcium reactors too i mean yeah i mean there's there's a balance where you get the ph in the right range and the you know it seems to come out like almost perfect which luckily for me right now it's my calcium reactors are are putting out balanced uh uh, products as, as they're being used but Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, I think uh, I would have dreamed about a product like that when I was first getting into the hobby, just like a one part, you know, trace elements, everything in it, you know,
1: there used to be, um, and it still exists, but I, I don't want to ever put down another product. Mm -hmm. Um, so I won't mention it by name, but there, there used to be other single solution dosing for calcium and alkalinity, Mm -hmm. but It's an older style that was based in calcium acetate, not calcium formate. Mm. Now, the problem with calcium acetate is that the oxygen consumption of the biological activity on the acetate is so high that you can't add enough calcium acetate to the system to meet the calcium requirements without dropping the oxygen so much mm. that the tank has a problem. Yeah. And so the the you always have to, whenever you're looking at a single solution for calcium and alkalinity, make sure that it's a calcium formate solution, okay. not a calcium acetate solution.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like your products are quite transparent about what's in everything. Everything's kind of like this breakdown of, <laughs> I mean, other than if it's some super proprietary formula of something, obviously I don't expect that, but I noticed that with the, um, the FOS feed, it, you know, it, it kind of gives a break. It doesn't say, it says, I think there's some trace elements in it, right? Uh,
1: there it are very, uh, a small amount in the Fosfeed because yes. what it does, what we always try to do, and and uh, Hans Verna designs a lot of our, most of our products, yeah. uh, what he likes to do is to say all right i know if i'm going to be adding this amount of this amount of say phosphate that it's going to cause a certain amount of biological activity Mm -hmm. so let me put in some of the trace elements that are going to offset that amount of biological activity Mm -hmm. So we do that with a number of our products where we know what it's going to cause in consumption and so let's address some of that right in the product itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I do like to know what they are because if it was a trace element that, was slightly elevated for me already based on my icps i'd want to be careful but i mean that's kind of my vendetta. i wouldn't say vendetta but it's my my uh, issue with uh, Coraline coralline is that there's so much mystery in, mm-hmm. in what's in those bottles you know and i think for you know i think i said this earlier in the early days the reason that that product line did so well is that it it had trace elements and not a lot of people were focusing on that back then but you know, something's better than nothing. Right. So, like,
1: well, part of the reason I've, I've been with this company for 27 years is because um, I, I was originally, you know, hobbyist, you know, yeah. and yeah. Um, the I was drawn to the company because the products are built on really good, solid science. Yeah. And the advantage of that for me as a company person is if I've got a customer that's got a problem, I can go back to the science and figure out what needs to be done to fix it. Yeah, where if it's a bunch of stuff that I don't know what's in it, then it makes it much harder to figure out what the issue is. Yeah, can
0: you actually tell me a little bit about the um, you know product development side and the research kind of lab in Europe and kind of what the staff is like? I'm kind of curious, like what what the team of people involved is. And
1: yeah. well, Hans Werner Balling is the guy that really heads most all of our product development. Mm-hmm. Um, he you know came on board uh, to. I don't know what year he came on board, Um, but it was after he had written about the balling method. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, he is a really brilliant scientist. You know, Uh, he's a hobbyist and um, he 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 gets in there and he he gets down to the molecular level of things, figures out what's going on and then looks at ways of addressing it. And then he experiments and tries those, you know, tries different methods. That's kind of where the phosphate and the start came from, was realizing that the coral polyps are not getting their phosphate from the water column. So then you say, okay, where are they getting it from? How is it possible that the corals thrive on a coral reef where the phosphate levels close to zero? How -hmm. is that possible, Mm -hmm. right? So if you look at that, and now you start looking into the science of it, and most of the science that is at the foundation of Tropic Marin products comes from what's going on in the ocean. And that goes way, way back, you know, 70 years or so to Dr. Hans Beiner, the guy that started Tropic Marin way back when, uh, was a chemist and chemist. Uh, um, You know, had a friend at the Berlin Zoo. And back in Mm -hmm. those days, they they trucked water from the ocean. It was the only way to, you know, have a have an aquarium, you know, Um, and uh, and and he was very much a proponent of what is in the ocean. That's what we need to do in our products. And I think that that basic principle has sustained itself all these years in the Tropic Marin approach.
0: That's great. I had no idea the company was traced back that far.
1: Well, uh, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of debate about whether the first laboratory made salt. And I don't like to use the term synthetic sea salt. Everybody uses this term. I hate it. And the reason I hate it is because it's not synthetic. It's not Mm -hmm. man-made. We don't, make sodium chloride in a laboratory
0: yeah right yeah that's true that's true no right
1: (laughs) you're not just drawing up drawing up elements from scratch (laughs) right it's not synthetic um the simple fact of the matter and and people don't realize this but the simple fact of the matter is that all sodium chloride on earth comes from the ocean Mm -hmm. whether you dry whether you take seawater and dehydrate it or if you go into a mine and you mine sodium chloride, that mine, where do you think that sodium chloride yeah, it came, came from, from? The ocean too. That yeah, was a sometime. primordial ocean yeah. that dried and left that that vein of sodium chloride. Mm-hmm. So sodium chloride all comes from the ocean. There's no such thing as synthetic sodium chloride. We don't make, we don't take sodium and chloride and put them together. Yeah, right? yeah. And so I I like to think of salts as man-made salts laboratory-made salts mm-hmm. or dehydrated salts right
0: yeah dehydrated um, or taking the individual elements and putting them together i think that's kind of the synthetic versus that's where that term comes in
1: right yeah but if you look at if you look carefully at the process of Salts that are made by dehydration, they dehydrate seawater and then they pretty much extract the sodium chloride from that and then add everything else in because mm. it's all in weird proportions. Yeah, it's and gonna so, be all weirdly probably precipitated too. It's really not that different, right? Mm. Um, but anyway, the, the reason I, I got to all of this was that yeah, yeah. there's a lot of debate, not a lot, but there is some debate as to whether Tropic Marin or instant ocean was the first man-made sea salt right Mm. we say it was tropic marin they say it was instant ocean but they happened around the same time and those were the first two salts that were made by man as opposed to using seawater
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's cool
1: um
0: back to the lab thing just another thought i had is do they have like a coral farm kind of system that they test products on like is there we
1: have tons of test yeah. tanks yeah um there's there's not a coral farm um yeah. although there there is a um um <laughs> we work very closely with um uh, two gentlemen uh leo De Bregin, yeah leo um,
0: dembran yeah he was on the podcast
1: my first guest actually okay so leo yeah, yeah. leo is a guy who takes some of the most magnificent pictures of corals you've ever seen yeah um and his farm runs exclusively on tropic marine products yeah so he's a really good test you know test mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. grounding ground for us and and he loves uh tweaking the products one way or another yeah. um and then we have um uh uh, Samuel Mietzer at the University of Oldenburg, who's doing a tremendous amount of research with coral sexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. And uh, he runs his whole research facility on Tropic Marin. Uh, and so again, we get a lot of input from there. So yes. we, we don't have a coral farm internal to our lab in Oldenburg, yeah. Germany, but we do work, although we've got a million test tanks there, we work very closely with these yeah uh, these outsource guys yeah and you uh, take
0: you take the, that feedback and, and utilize it. I think that's kind of cool to hear because you know sometimes I wonder about where this the hobby meets the science and like are the scientists listening because we're gathering data all the time every day I, I gather. Totally you know, 10, 12 hours of data when I look at my tanks and, you know, I learn something every day about, you know, like we talked about before making little changes and knowing how to observe them. Um, but I like, I like that. I mean, it's like, um, especially like in Europe, uh, like, I feel like more people stick to a system. So like there's people that'll just run their whole system on Tropic Marin as like Leonardo's reef you talked about, Mm -hmm. um, Uh, What do you think about the mix and matchy thing we kind of do in North America? We do a lot of mixing and matching of product lines.
1: Um, It it brings up an interesting point, which is that when when you run into a problem, it's hard for me to help you. When there's other stuff going in the system that I don't know what it is, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying you should only use Tropic Marin. That's not what this is about. What it's about is that. Um, the, the more mixing and matching that goes on, you have to understand that each company then is going to have a little bit more of a problem helping you because, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't know exactly what's in some of those other companies' products. I don't know how they react. I don't do the product support for those. So when, (laughs) when, um, when I ask somebody that's having an issue and they call me, what's going into your system? and there's a bunch of other other product lines going in there it makes it much harder for me to help them yeah. because i don't know how those products react with with mine
0: yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a good thing to keep in mind too. And, and I mean, you, you are very good for, you go to a lot of shows, you help and advise people a lot and, uh, you know, much appreciation for that. Um, <laughs> I,
1: I do my best, you
0: know. <laughs> but yeah, like I think, yeah, mixing and matching does kind of make it a little more kind of convoluted for, for coming at you with a specific problem and trying to make recommendations. I mean, it depends on yeah. what
1: it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it's something that's really straightforward, then i can kind of anticipate you know what's going in there but sometimes it's a product that's got other stuff in it and then i don't know how that you know i don't know how much of that other stuff is in there and Mm -hmm. um you know that's when it starts to get into a little muddied area
0: yeah yeah because i even thinking about this recently is um you know a lot of companies that do um you know a balling let's say balling type method um their alkalinity component could be a slightly different composition of of soda, sodium carbonate to sodium bicarbonate, yeah. which is gonna change the way it, you know, affects your pH and, you know, there's there's all those factors. So
1: right. And unless yeah. they come to us and and talk to us about it, like BRS for instance, you know, wanted to do the Tropic Marin BRS hybrid method. So they shared with us exactly what's in their thing and what and we did the calculations for them so mm-hmm. that their customers that are using their calcium and alkalinity could also use our trace elements and magnesium in conjunction with that because we did the calculations for them because they wanted to be able to promote it that way Mm
0: -hmm. yeah okay yeah um actually i don't have too many we got through most of the things i had written down here but i wanted to ask you um as far as ICPs go, you guys don't have your own ICP lab, right?
1: Uh, we do for our testing,
0: yeah, for your testing, but you don't you don't sell an ICP test product we we don't yeah. so like who would you what do you think is the most reliable or who would you recommend people use? Is that a hard one? Because <laughs> some of these um, are competing companies too, right? So <laughs> well,
1: how about if I address? my feelings about ICP testing in general.
0: Yeah, for sure. We can just kind of, we can dig into that and maybe make it our last uh, last topic here. But
1: I'm not. Well, and I, then I have I, one yeah. last topic. Yeah, right? okay. All right. <laughs> um, so ICP testing to me is a double-edged sword. On one hand, I think it's awesome to be able to really look at the components in the system, really be able to analyze what's going on kind of almost on a molecular level so that we can figure out where there's deficits and where there's not. Yeah. At the same or time, contaminants. Yeah. there's a downside to it. The downside is that when I start looking at concentrations of 0.001 something, mm-hmm. I start chasing numbers. And ICP testing is great for looking at trends. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not so great for looking at a snapshot in time. Um, people that call me and they say, oh, my tank is crashing. I don't know what's going on. So I did an ICP test and here's what it shows. And then I say, OK, what did your last ICP test show? And they say, well, this was the first one I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I don't know what the ICP test showed when your tank was healthy, then The current ICP test when your tank is not healthy really doesn't tell me a whole lot unless something super major is off, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm. we can't start looking at trace elements and these tiny little concentrations when I don't know what it was when it was healthy. Yeah. That's the first problem. So chasing numbers. Look, use the ICP test for trends. Is something over your last few ICP tests going up? or going down that's helpful but to go chasing a 0.001 number that's not helpful
0: yeah well it's those trace elements that are in parts per billion and when you just think about that for a second when you take that water sample to send off to your icp and you know that's just one little tiny little 15 mil vial of some of your tank water yeah and it's going to be analyzed and they're going to get your iron reading at parts per billion you know it almost yep. seems laughable to
1: think and you have to you also know. remember that certain values on an icp test are calculated so when you get your icp results and they and each mm-hmm. thing is listed n- not every single one of those is tested for the chemicals come in families and they say okay if this and this and this and this have those values then we can calculate that this must be that and this must be that, right? Mm -hmm. So use ICP tests as a trend. Take an ICP test or a couple when the tank is doing well so that if it goes south, we can then compare that to when it was doing well. And now we have something we can look at to figure out where the problem may be. But don't expect that one snapshot in time of an ICP test is going to tell you what's wrong with your tank today when you never mm. looked at it that way before.
0: Yeah, unless it's something like super high tin or what, you know, like an actual obvious pollutant contaminant. Right.
1: But even then, do a second ICP test because very often I see artifacts in the ICP test. You mm-hmm. know, if there's one number that's just way out of whack, do another ICP test because sometimes that's just an artifact of of that particular icp test now don't get mm-hmm. me wrong i'm not against icp testing i think it's fantastic we use it in a lab all the time mm-hmm. but you have to be reasonable about what you're reading in those icp tests
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah no, it makes sense i mean i think like it goes back to what we said before too about some of the trace elements is is adding some versus adding absolutely none is great you know, but but trying to just dial in these very, very specific numbers. I mean, I'm not going to knock any systems like people that do the Moonshiners and some of these Triton systems have really, really great results. Um, and, you know, I've had good results from paying closer attention to trace elements. But um, it's that kind of not knowing like the 100% how much you can trust those numbers and how much has the system changed since that test was. Yeah. was, was done? I think it's too. fair
1: yeah. to say that, you know, um, there almost any of these systems work really well in somebody's hands mm-hmm. and, and different systems work better in different people's hands. And you got to find what works for you. You mm-hmm. know, I'm going to come back to that concept of, you know, learning the language of your tank and listening to your tank, because that mm-hmm. really is to me, the key skill for a hobbyist. Yeah, Because if you can, if you can really read what your tank is telling you, you're always going to be able to figure out the problems. Well, hopefully. Not always. <laughs> not always, but usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so listen, there's one last thing I really want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's my, I, I wish I could reverse my um, uh, my picture, but I can't. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, for, I mean, you may not know this, but I am now the vice president of the Marine Aquarium Society in North America, MASNA. Awesome. Oh, no, and, I did not know uh, that. we are gearing up for our, uh, conference in Orlando uh this coming you know fall and um I like to encourage people to go to the Mazna website become a Mazna member uh there's huge benefits now to being a Mazna member that never existed before discounts with BRS and saltwateraquarium.com and we talked about ICP testing uh Steve from ICP just raised his discount for members, um, and so there's big advantages in being a Mazna member. Go yeah. to the masna.com website and, um, and sign up to be a member. Uh, take a look at the program that we have for MACNA. Um, this year, we're doing something very different in MACNA. Our Friday, our entire Friday is an education day with a whole oh. day of lectures in three different tracks. Uh, beginner intermediate and advanced tracks and you can switch cool. you can take a beginner lecture and an advanced lecture and an intermediate lecture. Um check out the MACNA twenty twenty four website and check out masna.com. Yeah, I, will, I will I will put
0: the links, don't you worry. Are you gonna be doing a, a lecture? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I think as vice president I'm gonna be too busy this year to yeah. be lecturing. Um I probably, uh, I'm also, we're also doing the lecturing in a very different way. If you go to the MACNA website, um, you'll see we've got a a different kind. um, This year, rather than placing the importance um, on who the personality is that's lecturing, we're placing the importance on getting people to lecture that can cover the subjects well, Mm -hmm. And having people register because the subject is what they're interested in.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, I may be there. So if I do, I'll uh, say hi. Awesome. If you
1: have any questions about it, call me. Yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, I'm going to ask you one final question. I usually ask rapid fire questions, but I'm just going to skip to the last kind of thought experiment one. Sure. Uh, Okay, so if you had the financial means and the life kind of situation to do so, would you do something like Andrew Sandler's Polo Reef? And and you, you know, it's not about the money. You can hire good people. It's not about your time. It's just, you know.
1: Wow, good question. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you the real answer to it because I visited Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I toured his facility and spoke with him and got to see – all behind the scenes. Um, my answer, if if money was no object, personnel was no object, I could get <laughs> the right people and I had the right time, I would do something similar but very different. Yeah, I like that. And that's something I like to
0: add on to the question, too, is what would you do differently if you. Um, yeah.
1: I would make the display tank less um showy Mm. my display tank would look much more like a natural coral reef so a little more broken up like a little more broken up yeah um more similar species of corals Mm -hmm. in in big sections right more schools of similar fish like Mm -hmm. i might have a big school of heniochus and a big school of anthias and you know like i'd have um i i i mean don't get me wrong andrew's system is yeah yeah Off
0: the charts. Oh no, but this is good stuff. I mean, I'm always curious what you know. What Um, feel? Everybody has a little bit of a different take.
1: on Yeah, I mean, his his system really is off the charts, and I love it. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, it's amazing. You could stand there for hours. It's amazing to watch. Sure. But if I were doing it, it would be more, um, more like a, um, uh, what do you call it when you you know you make a tank, uh, a certain biome you know yeah
0: yeah what is it uh it's not coming to me now too it's like a contagious i forgot the word you forget the word but you know what i'm talking about (laughs) yeah Um.
1: i would make it more like a like a like a natural coral reef with Mm -hmm. maybe three or four major different types of coral Mm -hmm. and maybe you know 10 or 12 different schools of fish that would school up um uh when i when i see andrew's tank it's 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 amazing but for me personally aesthetically it's a it's a little bit much and mm-hmm. i'd like a lot to, to say, take in if it were me i would do it in a little bit more focused way yeah
0: yeah yeah cool yeah great answer that's definitely yeah interesting interesting thought
1: but I don't know that I would change anything behind the scenes that he has, Yeah. Because his system behind the scenes is better than most of the public aquariums I've been to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, this has been great. We Yeah, we definitely touched on a lot of stuff I wanted to get down to. So
1: Awesome. It's been really awesome. great, Adam. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode with Lou Eckes of Tropic Marin and Mazna. And like he said, make sure you go to the Mazna website at mazna.org and you can set up a membership there. And also check out the Tropic Marin USA website, which is tropicmarin-usa.com. And definitely keep an eye out on the USA show circuit for Lou who is often attending a lot of these and will answer questions directly. And if you have any suggestions for future guests, want to just ask us a question, make a suggestion, make a criticism, whatever you want to say, feel free to reach out at beyondthereefpod at gmail.com. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. And if you're looking for high quality aquacultured corals in Canada, please check us out at fraggarage.ca. Hope to hear from you soon.